Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Why is Lord Peter becoming apprehensive now that the clouds begin to thin for him? Dorothy Sayers, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you. We really try to over-deliver to make your support worth your while. So for a $5 monthly donation, you get a monthly code for $8 off any audiobook download. And you help to keep the podcast going strong. It really helps us out and gives us a revenue stream we can count on in this crazy time. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com today and become a financial supporter. Thank you so much. App users can hear Little Lamb by William Blake in the special features portion for this week's episode. Now for our personal moment. I figured during the holiday season I should have some Christmas stories. Well, when I was a boy, my mom would decorate our tree and living room to the hilt. It took a ton of work, but it meant so much to us kids. She called it her winter wonderland, and she had decorations that went back a couple generations that she'd put up, like Grandma Ollie's kissing angels. We had a tradition that on Christmas Eve, we could open one present— now, as the Christmas season progressed and things were bought and wrapped, Mom would put them under the tree. They weren't things from Santa Claus, because he came on Christmas Eve. They were just, you know, things from Mom and Dad or whatever. So, my little brother Blake and I, we saw a growing, you know, pile of presents accumulating under the tree. And we would minutely examine every single one. The shape, the size, the weight, everything about them, even how they were wrapped so that we could choose the perfect one to open on Christmas Eve night. And Mom knew we would do this, and she'd put things like macaroni in the boxes so they'd rattle. She'd put, like, jigsaw puzzles inside the other presents just to disguise how they'd sound. She put extra padding in and, like, put them in bigger boxes than they really needed and stuff like that, just to disguise what was inside. So one year, Blake and I, after weeks of measuring and investigating and consideration, we chose the perfect ones to open. They were different sizes, but we were sure they were the best ones. Mom saw what our choices were, and she said, you know what, you guys open those at the same time. We were so excited. So we did. We opened our gifts at the same time, and they were identical. We had both been given our very own jar of pickles. And that's our personal moment for the week. And now, Whose Body? Part 4 of 7 by Dorothy Sayers. 
Gladys Horrocks stated that she had been in Mr. Thipps's employment about three months. Her previous employers would speak to her character. It was her duty to make the round of the flat at night, when she had seen Mrs. Thipps to bed at ten. Yes, she remembered doing so on Monday evening. She had looked into all the rooms. Did she recollect shutting the bathroom window that night? Well, no, she couldn't swear to it, not in particular. But when Mr. Thipps called her into the bathroom in the morning, it certainly was open. She had not been into the bathroom before Mr. Thipps went in. Well, yes, it had happened that she had left that window open before, when anyone had been having a bath in the evening, and had left the blind down. Mrs. Thipps had had a bath on Monday evening. Monday's was one of her regular bath nights. She was very much afraid she hadn't shut the window on Monday night, though she wished her head had been cut off before she'd been so forgetful. Here the witness burst into tears and was given some water, while the coroner refreshed himself with a third lozenge. Recovering, witness stated that she had certainly looked into all the rooms before going to bed. No, it was quite impossible for a body to be hidden in the flat without her seeing of it. She had been in the kitchen all evening, and there wasn't hardly room to keep the best dinner service there, let alone a body. Old Mrs. Thipps sat in the drawing-room. Yes, she was sure she'd been into the dining-room. How? Because she put Mr. Thipps's milk and sandwiches there ready for him. There had been nothing in there. That she could swear to. Nor yet in her own bedroom, nor in the all. Had she searched the bedroom cupboard and the box-room? Well, no, not to say searched. She wasn't used to searching people's houses for skeletons every night so that a man might have concealed himself in the box-room or a wardrobe. She supposed he might. In reply to a woman juror, well, yes, she was walking out with a young man. Williams was his name, Bill Williams. Well, yes, William Williams, if they insisted. He was a glazier by profession. Well, yes, he had been in the flat sometimes. Well, she supposed you might say he was acquainted with the flat. Had she ever? No, she hadn't. And if she'd thought such a question was going to be put to a respectable girl, she wouldn't have offered to give evidence. The vicar of St. Mary's would speak to her character and to Mr. Williams. Last time Mr. Williams was at the flat was a fortnight ago. Well, no, it wasn't exactly the last time she had seen Mr. Williams. Well, yes, the last time was Monday. Well, yes, Monday night. Well, if she must tell the truth, she must. Yes, the officer had cautioned her, but there wasn't any arm in it, and it was better to lose her place than to be hung, though it was a cruel shame a girl couldn't have a bit of fun without a nasty corpse coming in through the window to get her into difficulties. After she had put Mrs. Thipps to bed, she had slipped out to go to the plumber's and glazier's ball at the black-faced ram. Mr. Williams had met her, and brought her back. He could testify for where she'd been, and that there wasn't no arm in it. She'd left before the end of the ball. It might have been two o'clock when she got back. She'd got the keys of the flat from Mrs. Thipps's drawer when Mrs. Thipps wasn't looking. She had asked leave to go, but couldn't get it. 
along of Mr. Thipps being away that night. She was bitterly sorry she'd had behaved so, and she was sure she'd be punished for it. She had erred nothing suspicious when she came in. She had gone straight to bed without looking round the flat. She wished she were dead. No, Mr. and Mrs. Thipps didn't hardly ever have any visitors. They kept themselves very retired, and found the outside door bolted that morning as usual. She wouldn't never believe any arm of Mr. Thipps. Thank you, Miss Horrocks. Call Georgiana Thipps. And the coroner thought we had better light the gas. The examination of Mrs. Thipps provided more entertainment than enlightenment, affording as it did an excellent example of the game called cross-questions and crooked answers. After fifteen minutes' suffering, both in voice and temper, the coroner abandoned the struggle, leaving the lady with the last word. "'You needn't try to bully me, young man,' said the octogenarian with spirit. "'Setting there, spoiling your stomach with them nasty jujubes!' At this point a young man arose in court and demanded to give evidence. Having explained that he was William Williams, glazier, he was sworn, and corroborated the evidence of Gladys Horrocks in the matter of her presence at the black-faced ram on the Monday night. They had returned to the flat rather before two, he thought, but certainly later than one-thirty. He was sorry that he had persuaded Miss Horrocks to come out with him when she didn't ought. He had observed nothing of a suspicious nature in Prince of Wales Road at either visit. Inspector Sugg gave evidence of having been called in at about half-past eight on Monday morning. He had considered the girl's manner to be suspicious and had arrested her. On later information, leading him to suspect that the deceased might have been murdered that night, he had arrested Mr. Thipps. He had found no trace of breaking into the flat— there were marks on the bathroom window sill, which pointed to somebody having gone in that way. There were no ladder marks or footmarks in the yard. The yard was paved with asphalt. He had examined the roof, but found nothing on the roof. In his opinion, the body had been brought into the flat previously, and concealed till the evening, by someone who had then gone out during the night by the bathroom window, with the connivance of the girl. In that case, why should not the girl have let the person out by the door? Well, it might have been so. Had he found traces of a body, or a man, or both, having been hidden in the flat, he found nothing to show that they might not have been so concealed. What was the evidence that led him to suppose that the death had occurred that night? At this point Inspector Sugg appeared uneasy, and endeavoured to retire upon his professional dignity. On being pressed, however, he admitted that the evidence in question had come to nothing. One of the jurors. Was it the case that any finger marks had been left by the criminal? Some marks had been found on the bath, but the criminal had worn gloves. The coroner. Do you draw any conclusion from this fact as to the experience of the criminal? Inspector Sugg. Looks as if he was an old hand, sir. The juror. Is that very consistent with the charge against Alfred Thipps, Inspector? The inspector was silent. The coroner. In the light of the evidence which you have just heard, do you still press the charge against Alfred Thipps and Gladys Horrocks? 
Inspector Sugg. I consider the whole set-out highly suspicious. Phipps's story isn't corroborated. And as for the girl, Horrocks, how do we know this Williams ain't in it as well? William Williams. Now you drop that. I can bring a hundred witnesses. The coroner. Silence, if you please. I am surprised, Inspector, that you should make this suggestion in that manner. It is highly improper. By the way, can you tell us whether a police raid was actually carried out on the Monday night on any nightclub in the neighbourhood of St. Giles's Circus? Inspector Sugg, sulkily. I believe there was something of the sort. The coroner. You will, no doubt, inquire into the matter. I seem to recollect having seen some mention of it in the newspapers. Thank you, Inspector Sugg, that will do. Several witnesses having appeared and testified to the characters of Mr. Thipps and Gladys Horrocks, the coroner stated his intention of proceeding to the medical evidence. Sir Julian Freak. There was considerable stir in the court as the great specialist walked up to give evidence. He was not only a distinguished man, but a striking figure, with his wide shoulders, upright carriage and leonine head. His manner, as he kissed the book presented to him, with the usual deprecatory mumble by the coroner's officer, was that of a St. Paul condescending to humour the timid mumbo-jumbo of superstitious Corinthians. "'So handsome, I always think,' whispered the Duchess to Mr. Parker. "'Just exactly like William Morris, with that bush of hair and beard, and those exciting eyes looking out of it. So splendid, these dear men, always devoted to something or other. Not but what I think socialism is a mistake. Of course it works with all those nice people, so good and happy and art linen and the weather always perfect. Morris, I mean, you know, but so difficult in real life. Science is different. I'm sure if I had nerves I should go to Sir Julian just to look at him.' Eyes like that give one something to think about, and that's what most of these people want. Only I never had any. Nerves, I mean. Don't you think so? You are Sir Julian Freak, said the coroner, and live at St. Luke's House, Prince of Wales Road, Battersea, where you exercise a general direction over the surgical side of St. Luke's Hospital. Sir Julian assented briefly to this definition of his personality. You were the first medical man to see the deceased? I was. And you have since conducted an examination in collaboration with Dr. Grimbold of Scotland Yard? I have. You are in agreement as to the cause of death? Generally speaking, yes. Will you communicate your impressions to the jury? I was engaged in research work in the dissecting room at St. Luke's Hospital at about nine o'clock on Monday morning. When I was informed that Inspector Sugg wished to see me, he told me that the dead body of a man had been discovered under mysterious circumstances at 59 Queen Caroline Mansions. He asked me whether it could be supposed to be a joke perpetrated by any of the medical students at the hospital. I was able to assure him, by an examination of the hospital's books, that there was no subject missing from the dissecting room. Who would be in charge of such bodies? William Watts, the dissecting room attendant. Is William Watts present? inquired the coroner of the officer. 
William Watts was present, and could be called if the coroner thought necessary. "'I suppose no dead body would be delivered to the hospital without your knowledge, Sir Julian?' "'Certainly not. Thank you. Will you proceed with your statement?' Inspector Sugg then asked me whether I would send a medical man round to view the body. I said that I would go myself. Why did you do that? I confess to my share of ordinary human curiosity, Mr. Coroner. Laughter from a medical student at the back of the room. On arriving at the flat, I found the deceased lying on his back in the bath. I examined him and came to the conclusion that Death had been caused by a blow on the back of the neck, dislocating the fourth and fifth cervical vertebrae, bruising the spinal cord, and producing internal hemorrhage and partial paralysis of the brain. I judged the deceased to have been dead at least twelve hours, possibly more. I observed no other sign of violence of any kind upon the body. Deceased was a strong, well-nourished man of about fifty or fifty-five years of age. "'In your opinion, could the blow have been self-inflicted?' "'Certainly not. It had been made with a heavy, blunt instrument from behind, with great force and considerable judgment. It is quite impossible that it was self-inflicted.' "'Could it have been the result of an accident?' "'That is possible, of course. If, for example, the deceased had been looking out of the window and the sash—' had shut violently down upon him. No, in that case there would have been signs of strangulation and a bruise upon the throat as well. But the deceased might have been killed through a heavy weight accidentally falling upon him? He might. Was death instantaneous, in your opinion? It is difficult to say. Such a blow might very well cause death instantaneously— or the patient might linger in a partially paralysed condition for some time. In the present case, I should be disposed to think that deceased might have lingered for some hours. I base my decision upon the condition of the brain revealed at the autopsy. I may say, however, that Dr. Grimbold and I are not in complete agreement on the point. I understand that a suggestion has been made as to the identification of the deceased— "'You are not in a position to identify him?' "'Certainly not. I never saw him before. "'The suggestion to which you refer is a preposterous one, "'and ought never to have been made. "'I was not aware until this morning that it had been made. "'Had it been made to me earlier, I should have known how to deal with it, "'and I should like to express my strong disapproval "'of the unnecessary shock and distress inflicted upon a lady "'with whom I have the honour to be acquainted.' the coroner. It was not my fault, Sir Julian. I had nothing to do with it. I agree with you that it was unfortunate you were not consulted. The reporters scribbled busily, and the court asked each other what was meant, while the jury tried to look as if they knew already. In the matter of the eyeglasses found upon the body, Sir Julian, do these give any indication to a medical man? They are somewhat unusual lenses, an oculist would be able to speak more definitely, but I will say for myself that I should have expected them to belong to an older man than the deceased. Speaking as a physician, who has had many opportunities of observing the human body, did you gather anything from the appearance of the deceased as to his personal habits? 
I should say that he was a man in easy circumstances, but who had only recently come into money. His teeth are in a bad state, and his hands show signs of recent manual labour. An Australian colonist, for instance, who had made money? Something of that sort, of course. I could not say positively. Of course not. Thank you, Sir Julian. Dr. Grimbold, called, corroborated his distinguished colleague in every particular, except that, in his opinion, death had not occurred for several days after the blow. It was with the greatest hesitancy that he ventured to differ from Sir Julian Freak, and he might be wrong. It was difficult to tell in any case, and when he saw the body, deceased had been dead at least twenty-four hours, in his opinion. Inspector Sugg recalled. Would he tell the jury what the steps had been taken to identify the deceased? A description had been sent to every police station and been inserted in all the newspapers. In view of the suggestion made by Sir Julian Freak, had inquiries been made at all the seaports? They had. And with no results? With no results at all. No one had come forward to identify the body? Plenty of people had come forward, but nobody succeeded in identifying it. Had any effort been made to follow up the clue afforded by the eyeglasses? Inspector Sugg submitted that, having regard to the interests of justice, he would beg to be excused from answering the question. Might the jury see the eyeglasses? The eyeglasses were handed to the jury. William Watts, called, confirmed the evidence of Sir Julian Freak with regard to dissecting room subjects. He explained the system by which they were entered. They usually were supplied by the workhouses and free hospitals. They were under his sole charge. The young gentleman could not possibly get the keys. Had Sir Julian Freak or any of the house surgeons the keys? No, not even Sir Julian Freak. The keys had remained in his possession on Monday night? They had. And in any case, the inquiry was irrelevant, as there was no body missing, nor ever had been. That was the case. The coroner then addressed the jury, reminding them with some asperity that they were not there to gossip about who the deceased could or could not have been, but to give their opinion as to the cause of death. He reminded them that they should consider whether, according to the medical evidence, death could have been accidental or self-inflicted, or whether it was deliberate murder or homicide. If they considered the evidence on this point insufficient, they could return an open verdict. In any case, their verdict could not prejudice any person. If they brought it in murder, all the whole evidence would have to be gone through again before the magistrate. He then dismissed them, with the unspoken adjuration to be quick about it. Sir Julian Freak, after giving his evidence, had caught the eye of the Duchess, and now came over and greeted her. "'I haven't seen you for an age,' said that lady. "'How are you?' "'Hard at work,' said the specialist. "'Just got my new book out. This kind of thing wastes time. Have you seen Lady Levy yet?' "'No, poor dear,' said the Duchess. "'I only came up this morning for this.' Mrs. Thipps is staying with me, one of Peter's eccentricities, you know. Poor Christine. I must run round and see her. This is Mr. Parker, she added, who is investigating that case. Oh, 
said Sir John, and paused. Do you know, he said in a low voice to Parker, I am very glad to meet you. Have you seen Lady Levy yet? I saw her this morning. Did she ask you to go on with the inquiry? Yes, said Parker. She thinks, he added, that Sir Reuben may be detained in the hands of some financial rival, or that perhaps some scoundrels are holding him to ransom. And is that your opinion? asked Sir John. I think it very likely, said Parker, frankly. Sir Julian hesitated again. I wish you would walk back with me when this is over, he said. I should be delighted, said Parker. At this moment the jury returned and took their places, and there was a little rustle and hush. The coroner addressed the foreman, and inquired if they were agreed upon their verdict. We are agreed, Mr. Coroner, that the deceased died of the effects of a blow upon the spine. But how that injury was inflicted, we consider that there is not sufficient evidence to show. Mr. Parker and Sir Julian Freke walked up the road together. I had absolutely no idea, until I saw Lady Levy this morning, said the doctor, that there was any idea of connecting this matter with the disappearance of Sir Reuben. The suggestion was perfectly monstrous, and could only have grown up in the mind of that ridiculous police officer. If I had had any idea what was in his mind, I could have disabused him and avoided all this. I did my best to do so, said Parker, as soon as I was called in to the levy case. Who called you in, if I may ask? inquired Sir Julian. Well, the household, first of all, and then Sir Reuben's uncle, Mr. Levy of Portman Square, wrote to me to go on with the investigation. And now Lady Levy has confirmed those instructions? Certainly, said Parker, in some surprise. Sir Julian was silent for a little time. I am afraid I was the first person to put the idea into Sugg's head, said Parker, rather penitently. When Sir Reuben disappeared, my first step almost— was to hunt up all the street accidents and suicides and so on that had turned up during the day, and I went down to see this Battersea Park body as a matter of routine. Of course I saw that the thing was ridiculous as soon as I got there, but Sugg froze onto the idea, and it's true there was a good deal of resemblance between the dead man and the portraits I've seen of Sir Reuben. A strong, superficial likeness, said Sir Julian, the upper part of the face is a not uncommon type, and as Sir Reuben wore a heavy beard, and there was no opportunity of comparing the mouths and chins, I can understand the idea occurring to anybody, but only to be dismissed at once. I am sorry, he added, as the whole matter has been painful to Lady Levy. You may know, Mr. Parker, that I am an old, though I should not call myself an intimate, friend of the levies. I understood something of the sort. Yes. When I was a young man, I... In short, Mr. Parker, I hoped once to marry Lady Levy. Mr. Parker gave the usual sympathetic groan. I have never married, you know, pursued Sir Julian. We have remained good friends. I have always done what I could to spare her pain. 
"'Believe me, Sir Julian,' said Parker, "'that I sympathize very much with you and with Lady Levy, "'and that I did all I could to disabuse Inspector Sugg of this notion. "'Unhappily, the coincidence of Sir Reuben's being seen that evening "'in the Battersea Park Road—' "'Ah, yes,' said Sir Julian. "'Dear me, here we are at home. "'Perhaps you would come in for a moment, Mr. Parker, "'and have tea or a whisky and soda or something?' Parker promptly accepted this invitation, feeling that there were other things to be said. The two men stepped into a square, finely furnished hall with a fireplace on the same side as the door and a staircase opposite. The dining-room door stood open on their right, and as Sir Julian rang the bell, a manservant appeared at the far end of the hall. "'What will you take?' asked the doctor. "'After that dreadfully cold place,' said Parker, "'what I really want is gallons of hot tea, "'if you as a nerve specialist can bear the thought of it. "'Provided you allow of a judicious blend of china in it,' "'replied Sir Julian in the same tone, "'I have no objection to make. "'Tea in the library at once,' he added to the servant, "'and led the way upstairs.' "'I don't use the downstairs rooms much, except the dining-room,' he explained, as he ushered his guest into a small but cheerful library on the first floor. "'This room leads out of my bedroom and is more convenient. I only live part of my time here, but it's very handy for my research work at the hospital. That's what I do there, mostly. It's a fatal thing for a theorist, Mr. Parker.' to let the practical work get behind hand. Dissection is the basis of all good theory and all correct diagnosis. One must keep one's hand and eye in training. This place is far more important to me than Harley Street, and some day I shall abandon my consulting practice altogether and settle down here to cut up my subjects and write my books in peace. So many things in this life are a waste of time, Mr. Parker." Mr. Parker assented to this. "'Very often,' said Sir Julian, "'the only time I get for any research work, "'necessitating as it does the keenest observation "'and the faculties at their acutest, "'has to be at night, "'after a long day's work and by artificial light, "'which, magnificent as the lighting "'of the dissecting room here is, "'is always more trying to the eyes than daylight.' Doubtless your own work has to be carried on under even more trying conditions. Yes, sometimes, said Parker. But then you see, he added, the conditions are, so to speak, part of the work. Quite so, quite so, said Sir Julian. You mean that the burglar, for example, does not demonstrate his methods in the light of day? or plant the perfect footmark in the middle of a damp patch of sand for you to analyse. Not as a rule, said the detective, but I have no doubt many of your diseases work quite as insidiously as any burglar. They do, they do, said Sir Julian, laughing. And it is my pride, as it is yours, to track them down for the good of society. The neuroses, you know, are particularly clever criminals, they break out into as many disguises as as Leon Kestrel, the master mummer, suggested Parker, who read railway stall detective stories on the principle of the busman's holiday. No doubt, 
said Sir Julian, who did not. And they cover up their tracks wonderfully. But when you can really investigate, Mr. Parker, and break up the dead, or, for preference, the living body with the scalpel, you always find the footmarks. The little trail of ruin or disorder left by madness or disease or drink or any other similar pest. But the difficulty is to trace them back merely by observing the surface symptoms. The hysteria, crime, religion, fear, shyness, conscience, or whatever it may be. Just as you observe a theft or a murder and look for the footsteps of the criminal, so I observe a fit of hysterics or an outburst of piety and hunt for the little mechanical irritation which has produced it. You regard all these things as physical? Undoubtedly. I am not ignorant of the rise of another school of thought, Mr. Parker, but its exponents are mostly charlatans or self-deceivers. Sie haben sich so weit darin eingeheimnist, that, like sludge the medium, they are beginning to believe their own nonsense. I should like to have the exploring of some of their brains, Mr. Parker. I would show you the little faults and landslips in the cells, the misfiring and short-circuiting of the nerves, which produce these notions and these books. At least, he added, gazing somberly at his guest, at least if I could not quite show you today, I shall be able to do so tomorrow, or in a year's time, or before I die. He sat for some minutes gazing into the fire, while the red light played upon his tawny beard and struck out answering gleams from his compelling eyes. Parker drank tea in silence, watching him. On the whole, however, he remained but little interested in the causes of nervous phenomena, and his mind strayed to Lord Peter, coping with the redoubtable Crimplesham down in Salisbury. Lord Peter had wanted him to come. That meant either that Crimplesham was proving recalcitrant, or that a clue wanted following. But Bunter had said that tomorrow would do, and it was just as well. After all, the Battersea affair was not Parker's case. He had already wasted valuable time attending an inconclusive inquest, and he really ought to get on with his legitimate work. There was still Levy's secretary to see, and the little matter of the Peruvian oil to be looked into. He looked at his watch. "'I am very much afraid, if you will excuse me,' he murmured. Sir Julian came back with a start to the consideration of actuality. "'Your work calls you?' he said, smiling. Well, I can understand that. I won't keep you. But I wanted to say something to you in connection with your present inquiry. Only, I hardly know. I hardly like. Parker sat down again, and banished every indication of hurry from his face and attitude. I shall be very grateful for any help you can give me, he said. I am afraid it's more in the nature of hindrance said Sir Julian, with a short laugh. It's a case of destroying a clue for you, and a breach of professional confidence on my side. But since, accidentally, a certain amount has come out, perhaps the whole had better do so. Mr. Parker made the encouraging noise which, among laymen, supplies the place of the priests insinuating, 
Yes, my son? Sir Reuben Levy's visit on Monday night was to me, said Sir Julian. Yes, said Mr. Parker, without expression. He found cause for certain grave suspicions concerning his health, said Sir Julian slowly, as though weighing how much he could in honour disclose to a stranger. He came to me, in preference to his own medical man, as he was particularly anxious that the matter should be kept from his wife. As I told you, he knew me fairly well, and Lady Levy had consulted me about a nervous disorder in the summer. Did he make an appointment with you? asked Parker. I beg your pardon, said the other absently. Did he make an appointment? An appointment? Oh, no. He turned up suddenly in the evening after dinner when I wasn't expecting him. I took him up here and examined him, and he left me somewhere about ten o'clock, I should think. May I ask what was the result of your examination? Why do you want to know? It might illuminate, well, conjecture as to his subsequent conduct, said Parker cautiously. This story seemed to have little coherence with the rest of the business, and he wondered whether coincidence was alone responsible for Sir Reuben's disappearance on the same night that he visited the doctor. I see, said Sir Julian. Yes. Well, I will tell you in confidence that I saw grave grounds of suspicion, but as yet no absolute certainty of mischief. Thank you. Sir Reuben left you at ten o'clock? Then, or thereabouts. I did not at first mention the matter, as it was so very much Sir Reuben's wish to keep his visit to me secret, and there was no question of accident in the street or anything of that kind, since he reached home safely at midnight. Quite so, said Parker. It would have been, and is, a breach of confidence, said Sir Julian, and I only tell you now because Sir Reuben was accidentally seen, and because I would rather tell you in private than have you ferreting round here and questioning my servants, Mr. Parker. You will excuse my frankness. Certainly, said Parker. I hold no brief for the pleasantness of my profession, Sir Julian. I am very much obliged to you for telling me this. I might otherwise have wasted valuable time following up a false trail. I am sure I need not ask you in your turn— to respect this confidence, said the doctor. To publish the matter abroad would only harm Sir Reuben and pain his wife, besides placing me in no favourable light with my patience. I promise to keep the thing to myself, said Parker. Except, of course, he added hastily, that I must inform my colleague. You have a colleague in the case? I have. What sort of person is he? He will be perfectly discreet, Sir Julian. Is he a police officer? You need not be afraid of your confidence getting into the records at Scotland Yard. I see that you know how to be discreet, Mr. Parker. We also have our professional etiquette, Sir Julian. On returning to Great Ormond Street, Mr. Parker found a wire awaiting him, which said, Do not trouble to come. All well. Returning tomorrow. Whimsy. 
Chapter 7 On returning to the flat just before lunchtime on the following morning, after a few confirmatory researches in Bollum and the neighbourhood of Victoria Station, Lord Peter was greeted at the door by Mr. Bunter, who had gone straight home from Waterloo, with a telephone message and a severe and nursemaid-like eye. Lady Swaffen rang me up, my lord, and said she hoped your lordship had not forgotten you were lunching with her. I have forgotten, Bunter, and I mean to forget. I trust you told her I had succumbed to lethargic encephalitis suddenly, no flowers by request. Lady Swaffen said, my lord, she was counting on you. She met the Duchess of Denver yesterday. If my sister-in-law's there, I won't go. That's flat, said Lord Peter. I beg your pardon, my lord, the Dowager Duchess. What's she doing in town? I imagine she came up for the inquest, my lord. Oh, yes. We missed that, Bunter. Yes, my lord. Her grace is lunching with Lady Swaffham. Bunter, I can't. I can't, really. Say I'm in bed with whooping cough and ask my mother to come round after lunch. Very well, my lord. Mrs. Tommy Frail will be at Lady Swaffham's, my lord, and Mr. Milligan. Mr. Who? Mr. John P. Milligan, my lord. And... Good God, Bunter! Why didn't you say so before? Have I time to get there before he does? All right, I'm off. With a taxi, I can just... Not in those trousers, my lord, said Mr. Bunter, blocking the way to the door with deferential firmness. Oh, Bunter, pleaded his lordship. Do let me, just this once. You don't know how important it is. Not on any account, my lord. It would be as much as my place is worth. The trousers are all right, Bunter. Not for Lady Swaffham's, my lord. Besides, your lordship forgets the man that ran against you with the milk can at Salisbury. And Mr. Bunter laid an accusing finger on a slight stain of grease showing across the light cloth. I wish to God I'd never let you grow into a privileged family retainer, Bunter, said Lord Peter bitterly, dashing his walking stick into the umbrella stand. You've no conception of the mistakes my mother may be making. Mr. Bunter smiled grimly and led his victim away. When an immaculate Lord Peter was ushered, rather late for lunch, into Lady Swaffham's drawing-room, the Dowager Duchess of Denver was seated on a sofa, plunged in intimate conversation with Mr. John P. Milligan of Chicago. I'm very pleased to meet you, Duchess, had been that financier's opening remark. To thank you for your exceedingly kind invitation. I assure you it's a compliment I deeply appreciate. The Duchess beamed at him, while conducting a rapid rally of all her intellectual forces. Do come and sit down and talk to me, Mr. Milligan, she said. I do so love talking to you great businessmen. Let me see, is it a railway king you are, or something about puss in the corner? At least... I don't mean that exactly, but that game one used to play with cards, all about wheat and oats, and there was a bull and a bear, too. Or was it a horse? No, a bear. Because I remember one always had to try and get rid of it, and it used to get so dreadfully crumpled and torn, poor thing, always being handed about, one got to recognise it. And then one had to buy a new pack, so foolishly and dreadfully noisy but really excellent for breaking the eyes with rather stiff people who didn't get to know each other. I'm quite sorry it's gone out. 
Mr. Milligan sat down. Well, now, he said, I guess it's as interesting for us businessmen to meet British aristocrats as it is for Britishers to meet American railway kings, Duchess. And I guess I'll make as many mistakes talking your kind of talk as you would make if you were trying to run a corner of wheat in Chicago. Fancy now. I called that fine lad of yours Lord Whimsy the other day, and he thought I'd mistaken him for his brother. That made me feel rather green. This was an unhoped-for lead. The Duchess walked warily. Dear boy, she said, I am so glad you met him, Mr. Milligan. Both my sons are a great comfort to me, you know. Though, of course, Gerald is the more conventional, but the right kind of person for the House of Lords, you know, and a splendid farmer. I can't see Peter down at Denver half so well, though he is always going to all the right things in town, and very amusing sometimes, poor boy. I was very much gratified by Lord Peter's suggestion, pursued Mr. Milligan, for which I understand you are responsible, and I'll surely be very pleased to come any day you like, though I think you're flattering me too much. Ah, well, said the Duchess. I don't know if you're the best judge of that, Mr. Milligan, not that I know anything about business myself, she added. I'm rather old-fashioned for these days, you know, and I can't pretend to do more than know a nice man when I see him, for the other things I rely on my son. The accent of this speech was so flattering that Mr. Milligan purred almost audibly, and said, Well, Duchess, I guess that's where a lady with a real, beautiful, old-fashioned soul has the advantage of these modern young blatherskites. There aren't many men who wouldn't be nice to her. And even then, if they aren't rock-bottom, she can see through them. But that leaves me where I was, thought the Duchess. I believe, she said aloud, that I ought to be thanking you in the name of the Vicar of Duke's Denver for the very munificent check which reached him yesterday for the Church Restoration Fund. He was so delighted and astonished, poor dear man. Oh, that's nothing, said Mr. Milligan. We haven't any old fine-crusted buildings like yours over on our side, so it's a privilege to be allowed to drop a little kerosene into the wormholes when we hear one of the old countries suffering from senile decay. So when your lad told me about Duke's Denver, I took the liberty to subscribe without waiting for the bazaar. I'm sure it was very kind of you, said the Duchess. You are coming to the bazaar, then? She continued, gazing into his face appealingly. "'Sure thing,' said Mr. Milligan, with great promptness. "'Lord Peter said you'd let me know for sure about the date, "'but we can always make time for a little bit of good work anyway. "'Of course I'm hoping to be able to avail myself of your kind invitation to stop, "'but if I'm rushed, I'll manage anyhow to pop over and speak my piece and pop back again.' "'I hope so very much,' said the Duchess.' I must see what can be done about the date. Of course, I can't promise. No, no, said Mr. Milligan, heartily. I know what these things are to fix up. And then there's not only me, there's all the real big men of European eminence your son mentioned to be consulted. The Duchess turned pale at the thought that any one of these illustrious persons might sometime turn up in somebody's drawing-room but by this time she had dug herself in comfortably, and was even beginning to find her range. 
I can't say how grateful we are to you, she said. It will be such a treat. Do tell me what you think of saying. Well, began Mr. Milligan. Suddenly everybody was standing up, and a penitent voice was heard to say, Really, most awfully sorry, you know. Hope you'll forgive me, Lady Swaffham. What? Dear lady, could I possibly forget an invitation from you? The fact is, I had to go and see a man down in Salisbury. Absolutely true, upon my word. And the fellow wouldn't let me get away. I'm simply grovelling before you, Lady Swaffham. Shall I go and eat my lunch in the corner? Lady Swaffham gracefully forgave the culprit. Your dear mother is here, she said. How do, mother? said Lord Peter, uneasily. How are you, dear? replied the Duchess. You really oughtn't to have turned up just yet. Mr. Milligan was just going to tell me what a thrilling speech he's preparing for the bazaar when you came and interrupted us. Conversation at lunch turned not unnaturally on the Battersea inquest, the Duchess giving a vivid impersonation of Mrs. Thipps being interrogated by the coroner. "'Did you hear anything unusual in the night?' says the little man, leaning forward and screaming at her, and so crimson in the face and his ears sticking out so, just like a cherubim in that poem of Tennyson's. Or is it a cherub blue? Perhaps it's a seraphim, I mean. Anyway, you know what I mean, all eyes with little wings on its head, and dear old Mrs. Thipp saying, "'Of course I have, any time these eighty years, and such a sensation in court, till they found out she thought she'd said, "'Do you sleep without a light?' and everybody laughing, and then the coroner said quite loudly, "'Damn the woman!' And she heard that, I can't think why, and said, "'Don't you get swearing, young man, sitting there in the presence of Providence, as you may say. I don't know what young people are coming to nowadays, and he's sixty if he's a day, you know,' said the Duchess. By a natural transition, Mrs. Tommy Frale referred to the man who was hanged for murdering three brides in a bath. "'I always thought that was so ingenious,' she said, gazing soulfully at Lord Peter. "'And, you know, as it happened, Tommy just made me insure my life, and I got so frightened, I gave up my morning bath and took to having it in the afternoon when he was in the house. I mean, when he was not in the house, not at home, I mean.' "'Dear lady,' said Lord Peter reproachfully, I have a distinct recollection that all those brides were thoroughly unattractive. But it was an uncommonly ingenious plan. The first time of asking, only he shouldn't have repeated himself. One demands a little more originality in these days, even from murderers, said Lady Swaffham. Like dramatists, you know. So much easier in Shakespeare's time, wasn't it? Always the same girl dressed up as a man, and even that borrowed from Boccaccio or Dante or somebody. I'm sure if I'd been a Shakespeare hero, the very minute I saw a slim-legged young page-boy, I'd have said, Odds bodkins, there's that girl again. That's just what happened, as a matter of fact, said Lord Peter. You see, Lady Swaffham, if ever you want to commit a murder, the thing you've got to do is to prevent people from associating their ideas. Most people don't associate anything. Their ideas just roll about like so many dry peas on a tray making a lot of noise and going nowhere. But once you begin letting them string their peas into a necklace, it's going to be strong enough to hang you, what? Dear me, said Mrs. Tommy Frail, with a little scream. 
What a blessing it is none of my friends have any ideas at all. You see, said Lord Peter, balancing a piece of duck on his fork and frowning, it's only in Sherlock Holmes and stories like that that people think things out logically. Ordinarily, if somebody tells you something out of the way, you just say, by Jove, or how sad, and leave it at that. And half the time you forget about it, unless something turns up afterwards to drive it home. For instance, Lady Swaffham, I told you when I came in that I'd been down to Salisbury, and that's true, only I don't suppose it impressed you much. I don't suppose it'd impress you much if you read in the paper tomorrow of a tragic discovery of a dead lawyer down in Salisbury. But if I went to Salisbury again next week, and there was a Salisbury doctor found dead the day after, you might begin to think I was a bird of ill omen for Salisbury residents. And if I went there again the week after— and you heard next day that the Sea of Salisbury had fallen vacant suddenly, you might begin to wonder what took me to Salisbury, and why I'd never mentioned before that I had friends down there, don't you see? And you might think of going down to Salisbury yourself, and asking all kinds of people if they'd happen to see a young man in plum-coloured socks hanging round the bishop's palace. I dare say I should, said Lady Swaffham. Quite. And if you found that the lawyer and the doctor had once upon a time been in business at Poggleton-on-the-Marsh when the bishop had been vicar there, you'd begin to remember you'd once heard of me paying a visit to Poggleton-on-the-Marsh a long time ago, and you'd begin to look up the parish registers there, and discover I'd been married under an assumed name by the vicar to the widow of a wealthy farmer, who died suddenly of peritonitis, as certified by the doctor, after the lawyer'd made me a will leaving me all her money— and then you'd begin to think I might have very good reasons for getting rid of such promising blackmailers as the lawyer, the doctor, and the bishop. Only if I hadn't started an association in your mind by getting rid of them all in the same place, you'd never have thought of going to Poggleton on the Marsh, and you wouldn't have even remembered I'd ever been there. "'Were you ever there, Lord Peter?' inquired Mrs. Tommy, anxiously. "'I don't think so,' said Lord Peter." The name threads no beads in my mind, but it might, any day, you know. But if you were investigating a crime, said Lady Swaffham, you'd have to begin by the usual things, I suppose, finding out what the person had been doing, and who'd been to call, and looking for a motive, wouldn't you? Oh, yes, said Lord Peter. But most of us have dozens of motives for murdering all sorts of inoffensive people. There's lots of people I'd like to murder, wouldn't you? "'Heaps,' said Lady Swaffham. "'There's that dreadful—perhaps I'd better not say it, though, "'for fear you should remember it later on.' "'Well, I wouldn't if I were you,' said Peter, amiably. "'You never know. "'It'd be beastly awkward if the person died suddenly tomorrow.' "'The difficulty with this Battersea case, I guess,' said Mr. Milligan, "'is that nobody seems to have any associations with the gentleman in the bath.' "'So hard on poor Inspector Sugg,' said the Duchess. "'I quite felt for the man, having to stand up there and answer a lot of questions "'when he had nothing at all to say.' "'Lord Peter applied himself to the duck, having got a little behindhand. "'Presently he heard somebody ask the Duchess if she had seen Lady Levy. "'She was in great distress,' said the woman who had spoken, a Mrs. Fremantle.' "'though she clings to the hope that he will turn up. "'I suppose you knew him, Mr. Milligan. "'Know him, I should say. 
for I hope he's still alive somewhere. Mrs. Fremantle was the wife of an eminent railway director, and celebrated for her ignorance of the world of finance. Her faux pas in this connection enlivened the tea parties of city men's wives. Well, I've dined with him, said Mr. Milligan, good naturedly. I think he and I have done our best to ruin each other, Mrs. Fremantle. If this were the States, he added, I'd be much inclined to suspect myself of having put Sir Reuben in a safe place. But we can't do business that way in your old country, no ma'am. It must be exciting work doing business in America, said Lord Peter. It is, said Mr. Milligan. I guess my brothers are having a good time there now. I'll be joining them again before long, as soon as I've fixed up a little bit of work for them on this side. Well, you mustn't go till after my bazaar, said the Duchess. Lord Peter spent the afternoon in a vain hunt for Mr. Parker. He ran him down eventually after dinner in Great Ormond Street. Parker was sitting in an elderly but affectionate armchair, with his feet on the mantelpiece, relaxing his mind with a modern commentary on the Epistle to the Galatians. He received Lord Peter with quiet pleasure, though without rapturous enthusiasm, and mixed him a whisky and soda. Peter took up the book his friend had laid down and glanced over the pages. "'All these men work with a bias in their minds one way or other,' he said. "'They find what they are looking for.' "'Oh, they do,' agreed the detective." but one learns to discount that almost automatically, you know. When I was at college, I was all on the other side, Connie Bear and Robertson and Drews and those people, you know, till I found they were all so busy looking for a burglar whom nobody had ever seen that they couldn't recognize the footprints of the household, so to speak. Then I spent two years learning to be cautious. Hmm, said Lord Peter. Theology must be good exercise for the brain, then, for you're easily the most cautious devil I know. But I say, do go on reading. It's a shame for me to come and root you up in your off-time like this. It's all right, old man, said Parker. The two men sat silent for a little, and then Lord Peter said, Do you like your job? The detective considered the question, and replied, Yes, yes I do. I know it to be useful, and I am fitted to it. I do it quite well. Not with inspiration, perhaps, but sufficiently well to take a pride in it. It is full of variety, and it forces one to keep up to the mark, and not get slack. And there's a future to it. Yes, I like it. Why? Oh, nothing, said Peter. It's a hobby to me, you see. I took it up when the bottom of things was rather knocked out for me, because it was so damned exciting, and the worst of it is, I enjoy it, up to a point. If it was all on paper, I'd enjoy every bit of it. I love the beginning of a job, when one doesn't know any of the people, and it's just exciting and amusing. But if it comes to really running down a live person and getting him hanged, or even quadded, poor devil, there don't seem as if there was any excuse for me butting in, since I don't have to make my living by it and I feel as if I oughtn't ever to find it amusing. But I do. Parker gave this speech his careful attention. I see what you mean, he said. There's old Milligan, for instance, said Lord Peter. On paper, nothing would be funnier than to catch old Milligan out. 
but he's rather a decent old bird to talk to. Mother likes him. He's taken a fancy to me. It's awfully entertaining going and pumping him with stuff about a bazaar for church expenses, but when he's so jolly pleased about it in that, I feel a worm. Suppose old Milligan has cut Levy's throat and plugged him into the Thames. It ain't my business. It's as much yours as anybody's, said Parker. It's no better to do it for money than to do it for nothing. Yes, it is, said Peter stubbornly. Having to live is the only excuse there is for doing that kind of thing. Well, but look here, said Parker. If Milligan has cut poor old Levy's throat for no reason except to make himself richer, I don't see why he should buy himself off by giving a thousand pounds to Duke's Denver church roof, or why he should be forgiven just because he's childishly vain or childishly snobbish. That's a nasty one, said Lord Peter. Well, if you like even because he has taken a fancy to you. No, but look here, Whimsy. Do you think he has murdered Levy? Well, he may have, but do you think he has? I don't want to think so, because he has taken a fancy to you. Well, that biases me, of course. I dare say it's quite a legitimate bias. You don't think a callous murderer would be likely to take a fancy to you? Well, besides... I've taken rather a fancy to him. I dare say that's quite legitimate, too. You've observed him and made a subconscious deduction from your observations. And the result is, you don't think he did it. Well, why not? You're entitled to take that into account. But perhaps I'm wrong, and he did do it. Then why let your vainglorious conceit in your own power of estimating character stand in the way of unmasking the singularly cold-blooded murderer of an innocent and lovable man. I know, but I don't feel like I'm playing the game somehow. Look here, Peter, said the other with some earnestness. Suppose you get this playing fields of Eton complex out of your system once and for all. There doesn't seem to be much doubt that something unpleasant has happened to Sir Reuben Levy. Call it murder, to strengthen the argument. If Sir Reuben has been murdered, is it a game? And is it fair to treat it as a game? That's what I'm ashamed of, really, said Lord Peter. It is a game to me, to begin with. And I go on cheerfully. And then I suddenly see that somebody is going to be hurt, and I want to get out of it. Yes, yes, I know, said the detective but that's because you're thinking about your attitude. You want to be consistent. You want to look pretty. You want to swagger debonairly through a comedy of puppets, or else to stalk magnificently through a tragedy of human sorrows and things, but that's childish. If you've any duty to society in the way of finding out the truth about murders, you must do it in any attitude that comes handy. You want to be elegant and detached? That's all right if you find the truth out that way. But it hasn't any value in itself, you know. You want to look dignified and consistent. What's that got to do with it? You want to hunt down a murderer for the sport of the thing and then shake hands with him and say, Well played, hard luck. You shall have your revenge tomorrow. Well, you can't do it like that. Life's not a football match. You want to be a sportsman? You can't be a sportsman. You're a responsible person. I don't think you ought to read so much theology, 
said Lord Peter. It has a brutalizing influence. He got up and paced about the room, looking idly over the bookshelves. Then he sat down again, filled and lit his pipe, and said, Well, I'd better tell you about the ferocious and hardened Crimplesham. He detailed his visit to Salisbury. Once assured of his bona fides, Mr. Crimplesham had given him the fullest details of his visit to town. "'And I've substantiated it all,' groaned Lord Peter. "'And unless he's corrupted half Bollum, there's no doubt he spent the night there, "'and the afternoon was really spent with the bank people, "'and half the residents of Salisbury seem to have seen him off on Monday before lunch, "'and nobody but his own family or young Wicks seems to have anything to gain by his death. "'And even if young Wicks wanted to make away with him, "'it's rather far-fetched to go and murder an unknown man in Thipps's place,' in order to stick Crimplesham's eyeglasses on his nose. "'Where was young Wicks on Monday?' asked Parker. "'At a dance given by the precentor,' said Lord Peter, wildly. "'David—his name is David—dancing before the Ark of the Lord in the face of the whole cathedral close.' There was a pause. "'Tell me about the inquest,' said Whimsy. Parker obliged with the summary of the evidence. "'Do you believe the body could have been concealed in the flat, after all?' he asked. "'I know we looked, but I suppose we might have missed something.' "'We might, but Sug looked as well.' "'Sug! You do Sug an injustice,' said Lord Peter. "'If there had been any signs of Thipps's complicity in the crime, Sug would have found them.' "'Why? Why? Because he was looking for them.' He's like your commentators on Galatians. He thinks that either Thipps or Gladys Horrocks or Gladys Horrocks's young man did it. Therefore, he found marks on the window sill where Gladys Horrocks's young man might have come in or handed something in to Gladys Horrocks. He didn't find any signs on the roof because he wasn't looking for them. But he went over the roof before me. Yes, but only in order to prove that there were no marks there. He reasons like this. Gladys Horrocks's young man is a glazier. Glaziers come on ladders. Glaziers have ready access to ladders. Therefore, Gladys Horrocks's young man has ready access to a ladder. Therefore, Gladys Horrocks's young man came on a ladder. Therefore, there will be marks on the window sill and none on the roof. Therefore, he finds marks on the window sill but none on the roof. He finds no marks on the ground, but he thinks we would have found them if the yard hadn't happened to be paved with asphalt. Similarly, he thinks Mr. Phipps may have concealed the body in the box-room or elsewhere. Therefore, you may be sure he searched the box-room and all the other places for signs of occupation. If they had been there, he would have found them, because he was looking for them. Therefore, if he didn't find them, it's because they weren't there. All right, said Parker. Stop talking, I believe you. He went on to detail the medical evidence. "'By the way,' said Lord Peter, "'to skip across for a moment to the other case, "'has it occurred to you that perhaps Levy was going out to see Freak on Monday night?' "'He was. He did,' said Parker, rather unexpectedly, "'and proceeded to recount his interview with the nerve specialist. Hm," said Lord Peter. "'I say, Parker, these are funny cases, ain't they?' Every line of inquiry seems to peter out. It's awfully exciting up to a point, you know, and then nothing comes of it. It's like rivers getting lost in the sand.' 
Yes, said Parker. And there's another one I lost this morning. What's that? Oh, I was pumping Levy's secretary about his business. I couldn't get much that seemed important, except further details about the Argentine and so on. Then I thought I'd just ask round in the city about those Peruvian oil shares, but Levy hadn't heard of them, so far as I can make out. I routed out the brokers, and found a lot of mystery and concealment, as one always does, you know, when somebody's been rigging the market, and at least I found one name on the back of it, but it wasn't Levy's. No? Whose was it? Oddly enough, Freak's. It seems mysterious. He bought a lot of shares last week in a secret kind of way, a few of them in his own name, and then quietly sold them out on Tuesday at a small profit. A few hundreds. Not worth going to all that trouble about, you wouldn't think. Shouldn't have thought he ever went in for that kind of gamble. He doesn't, as a rule. That's the funny part of it. Well, you never know, said Lord Peter. People do these things just to prove to themselves or somebody else that they could make a fortune that way if they liked. I've done it myself in a small way. He knocked out his pipe and rose to go. I say, old man, he said suddenly, as Parker was letting him out, does it occur to you that Freak's story doesn't fit in awfully well with what Anderson said about the old boy having been so jolly at dinner on Monday night? Would you be, if you thought you'd got anything of that sort? No, I shouldn't said Parker. But, he added with his habitual caution, some men will jest in the dentist's waiting room. You, for one. Well, that's true, said Lord Peter, and went downstairs. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Whose Body, Part 4 of 7, by Dorothy Sayers. If you have enjoyed this book, feel free to visit our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and sign up to be a financial supporter. Donate $5 a month and get a coupon code for $8 off any audiobook. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.